WMNF Tampa. I'm Bill Dudley with co-host Sean Sexton, each week bringing you a new edition of Music of the Isles. You can listen anytime at WMNF.org slash Isles. Welcome to the Sustainable Living Show on WMNF Tampa 88.5, where every Monday at 11, we bring you a conversation with local experts on sustainable issues. Today's guest is Tom Reese talking about the springs in Tampa Bay and shoreline restoration. Today, we will be talking with Tom Reese, but first, um, Annie has some interesting event to tell you about and i forgot to mention i skipped a whole section yeah i was our wondering today <laughs> our host today are tanya Vidovic, myself and miss annie ellis our lead is taking your calls and the wonderful mr bill grace is working those boards so annie will you tell us about the event that we have today i sure will uh today uh, uh well it's good to see you anyway just by the way uh i love to see your beautiful face on on the air um it's on my end y'all can't see her but maybe someday so uh, today I'm uh, have a before we start the interview with Tom, uh, we're going to take a call from Caleb Quaid, and he's the president of Regenerative Shift, calling in about. Um, Don't do anything. Okay, call, <laughs> I'm not supposed to do anything. Calling in about the event Regenerate Tampa Bay at Sweetwater Organic Farm on Saturday, March the second. Welcome, Caleb. Thank you so much for having me, Annie. Oh, you're very welcome. Glad to have you on. We've been having a lot of phone trouble today, so uh, it sounds a little sketchy, but we'll just do the best that we can. So we'd like for you to talk about that uh, Regenerate Tampa Bay that you uh, have going on. Um, it's, I, I know that you're, it's a lot about recognizing the elders that have so much knowledge to share. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so it's Regenerate Tampa Bay, as you mentioned, is um, on Saturday, March 2nd at Sweetwater Organic Community Farm. Um, started with some conversations between Laura Ibrahim and Bill Billido coming out of the permaculture convergence. And our headlining event that you mentioned is really bringing together many of the permaculture and regenerative elders from the community. Bill Billido, Kareen Brennan, Christy Abbott, Sharon Joy Kleisch, and Jungle Jay Hardman. Yay, Jungle Jay. <laughs> yeah, for a wonderful, if you know any of them, you know how amazing just... They are all amazing, yes. ...having a conversation is going to be. Um, so that'll be in the afternoon, having a big conversation there. What time will that start when the when they start speaking? Around 4.30. Around 4.30. Okay. So this, this is an, an all-day event. It's going to be full-family fun. We're doing lots of stuff specifically for kids to let people to come and have some, some integration and bring the whole family. We're doing a big toy swap where kids can bring an old toy and, and trade it out for new toys. I'm going to kind of go all night with a campfire and s'mores and lots of fun things for the family and then lots of interactive workshops. And Will you guys have food there for people? Yeah, we're going to have a, we're gonna have a couple food vendors and then we have a couple surprises that will be announced here shortly, but uh, get some, some greens from um, from Sweetwater that will be grown right there and, and oh, yay. salad for people and then um, pizza and ice cream and a couple other vendors. And uh, so what time does that start? What's the location uh, address? And um, how do they uh, find out about it? How do they get tickets for this? Yeah, thank you. So it's it's, it's an all-day all day event. We're going to have our opening ceremony around 10 a.m. Parking opens at 9. 
and it, you know, kind of free flowing. People can come for the weather schedules permit, but it goes all the way to um, to, to 9 p.m. at night. We're going to have most of our content between like 11 and 6 p.m. With more in the evening is music and dancing and campfires and kind of hanging out and building some community stuff. And what's the address? Do you have that? It's I, I don't have Sweetwater's address handy, but it's Sweetwater Organic Community Farm. Um, and I know it's there's there's two entrances. The one off of Hanley Road is the one where most of the parking is. If right, and so that's the second entrance. So if people go online to look up that address, it's going to send you as a directive to the first, and you want to go to the next one, which is Hanley Drive, and that's the next light, and Correct. then you park there. Otherwise, you're going to have to turn around and get out and and go to that road. Second, you know, it is a little confusing, but we will be, for everybody who's registered, we'll have information that comes out with a map and, and, and all that specific information to try to make it easy for people. So there, uh, the way they get that is to go to Eventbrite and, uh, and type in... Uh, well, I'm just going to take it. Uh, type in Regenerate Tampa Bay at, at organic, uh, Sweetwater Organic Farm on Saturday, March the 2nd. So uh, also just to let you all know, it's not they are Sweetwater Farm is the host for this. It's not an event of theirs. So if you go to Sweetwater Farm, you're not going to see that on their event page. So go straight to um, to. Um, Go straight to uh, looking online in another aspect. Regenerate Tampa Bay. Yep. Caleb, can, can you hear me? Family? Yeah, can you hear me? I can now. Yeah, so it's yeah, regeneratetampabay.org is the event website. It's also on Facebook if you search for Regenerate Tampa Bay and then on Eventbrite if you search for Regenerate Tampa Bay. Eventbrite. That will be. Yeah. On Eventbrite and then regeneratetampabay.org is our main website. Okay. Fantastic. Well, thanks for calling in. Uh, it's going to be a great event. I'm very excited that you uh, have all these wonderful elders that have so much to share uh, about all these things that we all, they're like walking encyclopedias, basically. And we need to acknowledge them and utilize the time that they are giving us to be able to tuck it away in our memory banks as well. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to speak to, to your audience, and thank you for the kind work. Yes, you're welcome, Caleb. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Okay. Boy, that was some sound stuff, wasn't it? My goodness. Oh, well, we, we, tra we just travel through it. Uh, so I want to talk about Tom because he's sitting here right next to me, Tom Reese. And we're going to talk about shoreline restoration, spring restoration, and also what's the other thing that we're going to talk about, Tom? Public-private partnerships. Yes, public-private partnerships and uh, grants and that sort of thing to be able to manage a lot of this stuff. Correct. So, okay, well, I'm going to tell you all the wonderful, well, a lot of the wonderful things. There's so many th wonderful things about him. Uh, Tom is a, a nationally known ecologist with more than 40 years of experience restoring national system, natural systems uh, in the southeast. His work has garnered numerous environmental awards and resulted in a restoration of more than, more than 3,800 acres of wetlands and coastal communities, y'all. That's almost 4,000 
acres. That's amazing. Uh, he's a recognized expert in nature-based shoreline stabilization techniques, um, and he's implemented over 50 living shorelines just in the Tampa Bay region. He founded his nonprofit in 2003, and it's called Ecosphere Restoration Institute, and it advances restoration activities through innovative public-private partnerships, which is what we're going to be talking about. And his degrees are from South Florida, University of South Florida, uh, in biology and geology. And uh, so, really, let me run down here. He's a uh, decades-long career include the design and oversight of more than 150 habitat restoration and stormwater uh, retrofit projects, many, uh, 37 of which have been recognized with industry awards for design. Uh, that's, I mean, it's just so many wonderful things that he's doing, and I'm just so glad that he's here. One of the things that you have going on today, Tom, is that you have a program that you're presenting. Uh, would you like to talk about that before we go into our questions, please? Sure. Thanks, Annie. You're welcome. Yes. Today, um, the <clears throat> Gulf of Mexico Alliance is having their national conference in Tampa at the Tampa Convention Center. And today there are workshops. And so I'm going to be ha doing a workshop on how to design living shorelines at Love 1.30. It. At what time? At 1.30. And then how do they find out, how do people find out about, how do they register for that? You can just go on the um, Gulf of Mexico Alliance website and you can um, register there. Or I think they'll ever take registration at the front desk. It starts today. Okay. It's so a three-day conference, but today are the workshops. Okay, great. Well, I just want to make sure that we all knew about that because that's today. That's after this show. Right. So he's going to be zooming over there right after he leaves here. Thank goodness he was able to fit us in. So uh, so let's just get straight to it. Um, so what is a living shoreline and why are these important? Well, a living shoreline is really just a nature-based approach to the water-land interface. So in nature, that would usually be plants and and to be a gradual slope, and that's pretty sustainable the way it is. If we really had a big storm or a tidal surge, when that goes past, this living shoreline is still there living. Unfortunately, we've changed the shorelines and, and made them hardened, a lot of cases with seawalls or bulkheads. Yeah, I don't think people understand that a seawall is not a, a sustainable thing because it's what people have done all this time. So they just go straight to it because that's what they know. And so you're trying to introduce people to understand that that's failing and that the other ways of doing it is better. Is that correct? That's correct. I mean, there are places where seawalls are the only solution, but we have, I would say, of all the seawalls that are out there, probably about... 70% of them don't need to be there at all. There's oh, wow. no energy. They were just put in because it holds the ground. Looks pretty. And and has a hard edge. Yeah. But the problem is it, it displaces a lot of natural systems and ecosystem services. So there are places where we can take seawalls out. And even if you have a seawall, there are things you can do in front of your seawall to actually soften it, make it a living seawall. But we're really trying to put living shorelines in because once you do that, you don't have to replace it ever. Yeah, and that's the thing. I know I've had clients that have had seawalls and they just have to continually keep having people come in to fill in the washout and repair the opening, why it washed out and so on and so on. So you, that's an ex very expensive to maintain. And so you're saying that if you have that, you can adjust it and make it different to where it's going to mitigate the pounding and washouts. Uh, and then if you don't have it already, don't do it. Correct. And there are options that even in high energy, you can put in living shorelines um, and they work. 
right? We've, we've looked at these for a number of years and even right after hurricanes, I go out there and check them and they withstood the energy. So that's the main thing. People are concerned that they are functional or that they can provide the resiliency, but they, they seem to be, if they're designed right, they work really well. Yeah, I, people are very afraid of hurricanes, when we, with good reason. But I mean, they cut all the trees down <laughs> and, they, and they put up hard shoreline edges. I mean, it's, it really kind of goes against what the point of these uh, natural objects are doing for us. Like they break, the trees break the, the, the wind line, basically, and, and, and uh, loosen it up before it gets to you. So anyway, I digress. I'm a tree girl, you know. Uh, so they do protect uh, as, as well or better than a seawall, correct? Yes, and in almost all cases, they're cheaper. Wow. So they're cheaper to put in and you don't have to replace them. Right? See, that's good to hear. Right. In a seawall, you're lucky to get 40 years. And even though you're doing small repairs right. for some of that time, you're going to eventually have to replace it. And that's where it's expensive. Um, so anyway, it has all these positives. It's just get the word out that there are alternatives. I think you're right. I mean, it's like people just don't know. Right. And so they just see what they have and they just, you know, pound along with it. So uh, they would, people that have seawalls or want to get these done, they would contact you uh, with your business. Yeah, you could contact us at ecosphererestorationinstitute.org and we can point you in the right direction. Uh-huh. We're doing projects where we're actually getting designs that may fit your property so you don't have to pay for that. We could hand those designs if you happen to have the same conditions. So we can gladly um, guide folks if they want to check this out. Well, that sounds like a great idea. You know what? I'm going to go ahead and uh, introduce us again, uh, just in case people want to call in or uh, email us about this, because I think it's fascinating. Uh, you're, in, you're listening to the Sustainable Living Show, coming to you from the studios of WMNF in Tampa. Today, we're talking with Tom Reese about shoreline restoration, uh, restoration of springs, and, uh, and different ways to put the private and the public together with that. Uh, and we want you, if you want to be part of the conversation, give us a call at 813-239-9663. Text us at 813-433-0885. Or send us an email at dj at wmnf.org, and we will read it on the air. You know, it's uh, thank you, Tom, for being here. This yeah. is this is I feel like such an important discussion. And Annie, when you hit on cutting down the trees yes. and then wondering why their yard is eroding, right. um, <laughs> I would <laughs> like why is this happening? I would love for Tom to explain the benefits of keeping these large trees on your property and not cutting them down in the first place. And I'll tell you why after he kind of explains this. <laughs> I came on the edge of my seat. <laughs> <laughs> well, in general, if there's a forest of trees, let's say oak trees, um, and there's a hurricane, well, that forest of trees, they kind of hold themselves together and, mm -hmm. and make a connection. And bottom line is that big wind, the wind that's destructive, stays above the trees then, right? Doesn't come down. But when that forest ends, the, that wind drops down to the ground and then the homes the, and yeah. the infrastructure are getting the full force of that wind. And so if you can keep trees in, it besides providing shade and all the other benefits, it does protect against high winds. And I would just add to that it's like trees, plural, not one. Right. That's a problem and with so one tree. How much, Go ahead. how much water do you think each large tree is soaking up? Like with each rainfall? 
Yeah, you're asking questions that I can't answer. I could look that ah, up. Ah, darn. Yeah. And, and <laughs> so a lot it's a good trees, question, though. <laughs> it, and they're not all the same, right? Certain trees are very good, like melaleuca, which not nat- are not native trees, but they really do soak up a lot of water. So it's by tree species, and I don't know those numbers. Mm. Okay. All right. Well, the reason why I was asking is because you were, Annie, you mentioned the trees being cut down and how, and immediately in my mind, it goes to flooding and soaking up water and stopping the erosion from happening in the first place, which, I mean, it seems like in Tampa Bay, we do a great job of cutting down trees and building on every little bit. Mm -hmm. I, um, I looked this past week in Safety Harbor, they're going to be cutting down like 50 grandfather trees downtown to put up condos that are going to be in the area of floods every year, like a foot of water. And it's going for like in between one and $2 million a condo. And I'm like, these people are buying this high end thing to literally just sit in flood water. Um, And I just thought it was so interesting. But so on that note, when we're talking about flooding and sea rise, what impacts do you think a natural shoreline has in like compared to something like a seawall? All right. Now, that's a great question because with sea level rise, and that's happened six inches since I've moved here in the 70s. Okay. There's not wow. like a question whether it's happened. It's six inches higher. Six at, inches. That's a lot. Yeah. And, and, that's and a it, ton. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Right. And that's no not stopping, right? So yeah. to answer your question, though, if you're at a seawall and you go up six inches, you, it, so what? Eventually, you're going to overtop that wall, mm-hmm. right? And so that's where these seawalls look mighty, but their biggest enemy is what's sitting next to them, which is water. So water overtopping it or water coming from the upland side will make that wall um, fail. Now, if you contrast that to a natural or living shoreline or living shoreline, what happens is you might have overflooding every once in a while, but it doesn't it doesn't hurt it, right? Mm-hmm. And as sea level rise grows up, the plants can slowly march up a slope. It can't not march up a vertical wall. Oh, yeah. And so you, there's, it just gets pinched out. So we really want to have a natural slope, four to one or gentler, going up, the, up from the water to the land. And that way, as sea level rises, the plants move up. And if we put in our living shoreline in the right salinity where there are oysters, and you have our oyster line out in front, the oysters grow on top of each other. So you have a growing protective wall. A natural hardscape. Yeah, that constantly stays up because it can grow fast nine times faster than sea level rise. So it just stays in check with sea level rise. That's why. So there's a lot of benefits that you don't have to pay for, right? You have these natural um, protection and it provides all these provides all these ecosystem services and fish and wildlife and aesthetically they're way prettier than a vertical <laughs> wall. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> So what plants do you recommend? Like if people want to try and do it themselves, what kind of plants do you recommend that people use when making a living shoreline? Well, obviously you want to use all native plants, right? If we don't want non-native yes. plants, that's a big issue in Florida. So native plants. And then if you're in the tidal zone, there's three species of cord grass or spartina. And one sits in the water, one sits just out, one sits just above. So you make sure you put those in the right order. And there's IFAS and a number of entities from UF can provide pamphlets on this, where of course we can answer questions on all the technical stuff, but you would put the right one in the right zone Mm -hmm. and then they'll slowly march up as sea level rises or 
uh, as water levels change over over time. I love that they're marching. They're not posed vaulters, but they march. <laughs> and is there any sort of like if you have a living shoreline and your plants are starting to die, is there any way of testing your waters in the area to see what's killing the plants that are in on your shoreline? Like as far as doing remediation? Yeah, and it depends what's killing them, right? If it's because its salinity is getting higher, um, that can cause problems with plants. Or it could be from nutrients coming from the upland. Um, there's a lot of things. So if you really are starting to see death, you may want to check salinity if you have that, if you have you're on estuarine waters. Um, and so most of these plants have a pretty wide range, but there is an upper limit, right? And if there were some freshwater plants came in and now we're getting more and more saline waters, they're not going to make it. So, so. then what, you, what yeah. you do is you put in ones that can tolerate more salinity. Exactly. Okay, so, so as that dies, then you just revitalize it with something that's going to adjust. Correct. Cool. You're listening to the Sustainable Living Show. I'm coming to you from the studios of WMNF in Tampa. Today, we're talking with Tom Reese about Tampa Bay Springs and shoreline restorations. If you want to be a part of this conversation, give us a call at 813-239-9663, or you can text us at 813-433-0885, or you can send an email at dj at wmnf.org. So uh, thanks, Tanya. So the thing is, is that when you just said that made me think of something else, you know, about when uh, Tanya said about testing. uh, I mean, I would think that you really wouldn't want to wait until something's dying to do testing. It seems to me as it would be on preventive uh, measure that you would go in and test that area, I don't know, twice a year or something like that. And how do you do that? And where do you send it? Um, all right, a lot of questions in there. I'm sorry. That's okay. <laughs> I, have a lot, I have a lot of questions. I do. I want to know. <laughs> well, you, hopefully you'll see um, stress first before they're dead. Okay. Right? And you start seeing stress and you start looking a little closer at it. Um, and there's simple refractometers. There's handheld. You can buy them yourself online or you could take them to probably any university or even UF and, and they could tell you the salinity or we could oh. too. It's a pretty simple cast and we could tell you within a couple minutes, but the, you have to do it multiple times, not just once because that's just a snapshot. You want to see what during higher tide or lower tide or during a lot of rain, it, you can check that. It may not be salinity, but that could be one of the things for easiest thing to test. Yeah. So you want to get an average. That makes sense. Right. Otherwise you're going to panic for no reason. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so where do you get those uh, grasses? Well, actually, there's a lot of native nurseries here. Oh. And back in the 80s, when we started doing restoration projects, there were no nurseries that dealt in native grasses in particular, but it became a business. Now there's a number of really good nurseries there. Florida Natives Nurseries is a really, just to name one, um, but they have all these native plants, whether it's freshwater species or um, saltwater species, so you can put the right one in the right spot. See, I never, when I think about uh, the native plant nurseries, my brain doesn't go to shore restoration. It goes to butterflies and bugs and bees and, and you know, what's going to work, which is, we were even saying earlier, you said put the right plant in the right place, which is the whole philosophy about plants in general, right place, right plant, right time. And so, you know, because of that, I just never thought of it. That's really great that you said that, that they sell that. So you would go in to the native nursery and you would talk to them about the water 
qualities right. that you have, and they would direct you in that. Exactly, and they know exactly what works. Um, and they'll grow saltwater plants and freshwater. So they'll grow them saltwater plants in the mostly fresh, but then they acclimate them to whatever salinity that you're going to put them in. Oh. And then they can, like for mangroves, they grow great in freshwater, but if you just slap them in the salt all of a sudden. They'll be shocked. Yeah. So they uh, they will uh, prep the mm. the plants for your uh, type of uh, salinity that you require. I just love this. Yeah. It's so great how everybody's helping everybody. <laughs> I love this so much. So um, I wanted to also, well, we, were, we touched on it. Uh, all this is doing it because of the roots. Right. right. So like the oak tree roots that are at the shoreline, and then we're putting all these grasses, roots, all the roots are the things that are holding it together. So that's your objective is to get as much root action in the, on the line. So having those trees back again, uh, a group of them, not one, but a group of them, that's going to hold that mightily. Right. It really does help stabilize the soils and it has other benefits too for our organisms that live within the interstitial spaces. The organisms as yeah. in? Worms and critters and... Fish. Well, yeah, in the water. I'm just talking in the soils of the oh. roots of trees or any plants. There's a lot of nematodes and all kinds of... Oh, the of, microbes. Yeah, myofauna it's called. And um, that's a whole system. Yes. And so if you have these roots and you have a healthy system there then they're all going to work together. Right. That's the thing. It's like if you cut off one situation, it's going to affect the next thing, yeah. the next thing, the next thing. So having a, 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 a circular system is the, is the way. Yeah. So, um, you know, we wanted to talk about also the spring restorations that you're working on. What are those that you're doing now? Well, springs are really a unique feature for Florida. I mean, first of all, Florida has more natural springs than anywhere in the country. And, um, if you've been to these springs, they're beautiful, right? These crystal clear waters coming up to the surface, artesian-type flows, and they provide very unique habitats. Um, they're very important for, for manatees, for example, because they go there when it's cold, right? Oh, that right. water is whatever the mean annual temperature of this latitude, which is 72 degrees. So it can be 50, but that water is going to be 72 at a spring. So these springs are really unique features, and I've been fortunate enough to be involved with spring restoration projects. Um, some of them are more enhancement projects like Lowry Park Springs, which we just are working on right now. We did it back 32 years ago, and, and it now needs a little bit of help. But Eulalie Springs is, is a, probably the most n noteworthy one. People that, can really see that, too. Yeah. yeah, and those were two springs that were there, obviously, naturally. And, and back in, we think, the 1930s, the spring run was piped to the river because it was an impediment to walking around. You'd have to walk around the spring systems. So when we saw that and learned about that in around 2011, we started talking to the city saying, let's see if we can daylight the spring run, put it back. And so that was our big, our big spring restoration project, a very small project. But by opening up and taking those pipes out and putting a basin, manatees come in. There's 33 it's so different ones. It's so beautiful. The amount of, of uh, animals that are in there, it's incredible. You can just stand there and watch what's going on. It's just a, a ton. And it's really pretty, too. Yeah, and when you talk about the animals, you know, we did a little study there post-restoration. And um, there were 36 different species of fish. You had um, snook swimming right next to a largemouth bass. 
they all got along. Because <laughs> <laughs> you got the freshwater community from upriver and you got the saltwater community and they all go into that same area. And what we're finding is the manatees don't really hang there in the winter. It's not enough flow to keep it warm enough. But they're there in the summer, and we've we've documented three different times where they had where they calf their young in the in the spring. Oh, that's so adorable to see those baby calves with their mamas. Um, I want to talk more about springs, but I think I'd I'd like to uh, make the announcement uh, for us to uh, have people call in. Uh, Today, we're talking with Tom Reese about shoreline restoration. You're listening to the Sustainable Living Show uh, coming from the studios of WMNF in Tampa. If you want to be part of this conversation, give us a call at 813-239-9663, text us at 813-433-0885, or send us an email at dj at wmnf.org. You know, Tom, it's funny. When I imagine you, I imagine like, you're part of like a bigger movement of the rewilding mm. of Florida, like where you're kind of breaking down the systems that were established as how to make Florida pretty. Mm-hmm. But in reality, all it did was kind of like, it's, it's, I, I don't know how to say it without cursing. So it's kind of ruining <laughs> it. reversed it. <laughs> um, so it's kind of like, it's ruined the landscape and you're, kind of like bit by bit kind of trying to fix it. So I know that we just talked about, we're getting into spring restoration yes. and how you said that there's so many springs. My um, my friend Grace, who just sold her property in Florida, she had a spring in Silver Springs in her backyard that would, I mean, it gave off like probably a hundred gallons a minute. Like wow. it was this amazing spring just in her backyard. And it's amazing how many of these aren't mapped. So if somebody's, watching i know you said that a lot of the springs were redirected and it happened a lot in safety harbor in order to build so if you have one of these springs in your backyard and you're interested in rewilding it um how do you go about doing it well i would invite anybody that has that situation to please contact us we would gladly help them do that and i was surprised too there's no book on these little no, small springs at all. You're right. And I've even no. approached the University of Tampa and said, you know, maybe this could be a great project for a yeah. you know, student. And so far we haven't yeah. had anybody step up, but I really would love to do it. You would literally have to go kind of door to door and talk to people because yeah. these are just wet spots in their yard to actual spl- flowing springs. And if they can be just enhanced, if they're like a concrete pool or something and we can help them <laughs> make it more natural, that's our objective. And and I'll go on to say our next spring project is Palmacia Spring. I'm excited about it. That's it, where I live, around that area. So that's Can you right tell us on more Bayshore. About it? Yeah, that's right on Bayshore. Fred Ball Park. Fred Ball Park, exactly. Thank you, Annie. And, You're welcome. And what that used to be was a huge swimming pool that was fed by spring water. And if you, I have some historic imageries of it, and it is impressive. It was big. Um, but, you know, we keep paving over and paving over and the recharge of these spring systems just gets reduced and slowly they lose their flow to now it's a concrete line it's weird and it's it's horrible water quality and has a fountain in the middle and i've been trying to get the city to let us work with them and they said when 2024 gets here you know, we'll, we'll set a time and work with you. So guess what it is, right? It's 2024. <laughs> so in January, I called them and said, let's get going. So they're really supportive. And the, and the neighborhood group and the Rose Club and all those folks around there 
really are fired up about it. So our job is to work with the neighborhood to restore that to some sort of semblance of a natural system. It will not be what it used to be. It flows, but ecologically it can be better. And we'll try and get them funding to help them do that. I used to be the president of the Rose uh, Garden Club. Amazing. Yeah, and uh, we established uh, a... uh, uh, the garden area there that's all wildflowers. It's a completely native right next to it. I, I'm going to interrupt, though, because I want to say something about that spring. Okay, uh, Tanya, uh, my neighbor across the street, they were going down to the spring and they were going to feed the fish. And I went, what are you talking about? And they said, yeah, we bring uh, lettuces down and we feed these giant fish that are down there. And then she says, they're invasive species. And I went, what? What are you talking about? And it's called a pack. Then why are they feeding them? Exactly. <laughs> why are they? And, you know, my fear is, because there's more than one, is that they'll mate. And then what will happen is they can't get through because these things are big. These are like three feet. And so they will, uh, the little babies can go through the spring and then maybe get out there and cause a big, big problem. But I called the invasive species people, and I don't think anything ever happened with it. But they're in there. What kind are they? They're called pacu, and they are a South American freshwater uh, fish related to piranhas. The piranhas eat meat, and these pacu eat vegetables. Uh, And uh, they can reach, uh, let's see, uh, up to three and a half feet inches in total length and 40 kilometers, 88 pounds in weight. Wow. It sounds like there needs to be like a, like a fish off there, like Something. like some sort of fishing event to get rid of it. Absolutely. So, Tom, you mentioned the ecology of the surrounding area regarding the springs. So, obviously, if you cement it off in a spring, you kind of stop the water distribution from the local area. So, why why is it important for the springs to be able to flow naturally for the local eco- like environment? Well, any of these springs, they are delivering fresh water, right? And that helps keep the balance so we don't have so much salt water coming in the bay, right? And so we're far sense. up the river, I mean, up the bay, so to speak. But with sea level rise, we're getting more and more saline conditions. So at the same time, we're shutting off our springs indirectly. And so that's a double whammy. So if we can get these flows to be improved, and then in the case of Palmasillo Springs, and even Eulalie, it was just coming through a pipe, right? So these fish are, these little juvenile fish are sniffing for that right salinity. And there's a, a pipe. It used to be a spring, right? Well, they're not protected. They're sitting in the seawalled portion of the river. So they're being annihilated by their predators. So we need to put these quiescent areas in, pull out the concrete, put native plants in. The plants will absorb some nutrients before that spring water goes into the bay, right? So that's another good thing. So it's for improving water quality, providing habitat, um, and making sure we still have the flows going to this estuary. Otherwise, we're going to just have be, right, might as well be on the Clearwater Beach, right? It's going to be just 36 parts per thousand, right? And obviously, I'm being overdramatic. Yes, but it, it's important that we consider these things. Yes, and I, I just wanted to um, add... We I, have a couple uh, of calls, too. Oh, so perfect. Yeah, we have some calls and an email. You want um, to shoot your email? Okay, I'll take the call first. Yep. All right, Thanks. we have Sierra. And Sierra, you're on the air. What would you like to talk about? Hi, um, I was calling. First of all, I love your show. Great, um, thank you. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> I am a native uh, Floridian, uh, third generation. I take 
um, our natural resources very seriously. I even, when I was in college back in the late 90s, early aughts, I campaigned for Wakulla Springs up in Tallahassee. Uh, Good job. And thank you. Um, I That was, you know, in the early aughts, I went door-to-door campaigning for the springs. I would like to know, since the pandemic, since um, I've been here my whole life, I've just noticed these unbelievable influx of people coming to Florida that do not know anything about our state or how it works or our local ecology or the springs or anything. Or do they um, even care either? Right? I don't think they care. Yeah. And it's heartbreaking for me as someone who just loves my state so much. And I'm seeing this all over the place, the beaches, the springs. It's just breaking my heart. But what I would like to ask is, how can I, because campaigning isn't the same as it used to be. And so for me, I would really like to know how I can uh, volunteer to help educate these people moving here or just spread the word or do something to make, you know, a difference to save my state. Good for you. Thank yeah. you. And Sierra, that's that's really a hard task, right, is how do you get these folks? And I think what it, what the best way is, because you're targeting the new new folks coming here, is go to these brand, brand new subdivisions. They all get HOAs and they have to, you know, vote on things and, you know, how, much, how they cut the grass or whatever and offer to give classes oh. or, or just a lecture. Do a little a lecture. Yeah, yeah, get like a group together. And well, that's a great idea. we would be glad to... And we would be glad to provide even PowerPoints or or, or go to, with you or whatever. Because the more we get focused, most people do care. They just don't know enough yeah, to do the right thing. Yeah. Wow, that's yeah. a great idea. So, Sierra, you I contact John. You, you start looking around and then contact uh, Tom, and then you guys can put some stuff together. All right, thank you. Can you uh, can you say is there a, a website or uh, yes? Go ahead and say the website, Tom. Sure, it's ecosphererestoration.org. Okay. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you so for calling in. Appreciate it. We got lots of calls lately, so let's get those God calls. Much. Thanks again. I'm glad you you called in. Don't forget, it's fundraiser next week, so support us if you love us. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Bye bye. All right, we have Patrick from Land Lakes. Hi, Patrick, you're live on the air. Good morning. Good morning. I'm a third-generation native Floridian, and uh, just listened to the other caller, and I agree with her 100%. There's so many people moving to our state. It's very depressing. Uh, I've been blessed. I have a 100-acre farm. Beautiful. So I'm kind of got my own thing going on, but there's so much encroachment, and subdivisions going on around me. It's really, really sad. Mm -hmm. And my question, uh, I have a 10-acre pond. The water tables drop because they're pumping all the water from Pinellas, from Pasco to Pinellas County. My pond's down about 10 feet, but it isn't totally dry. I was wanting to know if Tom would think maybe there's a spring in that pond and the water's crystal clear. Well, Patrick, I'm not sure every site's different, right? It could be spring-fed. Um, if it's really deep, you're getting the groundwater. It might not be artesian, but you're hit intercepting the groundwater. If you talk to the folks of the Southwest Florida Water Management District, they're very helpful. I mean, they're a regulatory agency, but they have folks that will come out to your property, oh, good. take a look at it, and maybe, you know, give you some advice for what's going on. Obviously, we're in a kind of a drought. It doesn't feel like in the last 
couple months, but as far overall, we're like 12, 15 inches down from our normal annual rainfall. So that is probably exasperating things too. But I would talk to them. They can talk to you about, you know, why the water's down and whether you need to line things. And the last comment I'll have is, yeah, there's a lot of people coming down here because it's beautiful here, right? right. Um, and if it's done right, then that's fine. But I have a, a thing that in my mind is there's carrying capacity, right? Are we at carrying carrying capacity? I think we're over carrying capacity. I think we are too. Right. And so yeah. the, when you talk to the politicians, they were like, well, that brings in new revenue, tax revenue. And I'm like, well, if you stopped a certain area and just said, this, that's it, we're not putting any more here, the values of those properties would go up. You don't have to pave more to have more revenue come in. But eventually they'll figure this out, hopefully before it's all gone. Yeah, pay paradise, and, put it, up a and parking other, lot. You know, one of the issues, and it's just sad, um, you know, my farm was all citrus and we didn't have greening but we had very, very cold temperatures, and then the freeze wiped us out, so then we put in pine trees. Oh. But all these farmers now, they're selling out, and subdivisions are going up everywhere. Yeah, they are. It's really sad. Well, it's a lot of the people, the young people aren't wanting to stay on the farm, too. There's a lot right. of that. So right. I'm, I'm okay, so I glad you called in. I love your in. show, and I love uh, WMNF. Oh, thank you. We love you back. All right, bye. <laughs> Bye-bye, Patrick. Okay, we got one more call. Let's go ahead and take that. Michelle is in Tampa. What you're all live on the air, Michelle? Annie, it's your friend Michelle. Hi. I confess my sins. <laughs> oh, is this my friend Michelle? <laughs> yes. Okay. I'm a third generation campaignian. Um, oh my god. So those fish at Fred Ballpark, I am definitely part of that problem. Oh. Because I was I was ten years old and my dad decided to switch from goldfish to exotic discus and we I didn't have the heart to let him flush my fish down the toilet so I made him take me to Fred Ballpark when I was 10 years old oh my was like God. Ago. and there was already fish in there so I'm not the only one that put our fish in that right pond. but when I was 10 we may have put some mollies in there which I don't think are whatever that fish you said. no no these guys are humongous yeah but I'm pretty sure all of South Tampa at some point has contributed a fish to that pond. <laughs> they, I, they've emptied I their fish tank out there. Here That's now, funny. So, I put some of my fish in that pond. So like Maya Angelou says, uh, when we know better, we can do better. If we yeah. don't know, we don't know. But when we know better, we can do better. Well, I didn't want to be a fish tiller. Well, I'm glad that you got I that off your chest. Bay, so I figured the pond was better than releasing them into the bay to be out with all the fish. Yeah, I don't know if there's that much difference uh, because they can probably get through the spring and get out there. I think that's my fear about these big pacus is that they're going to give birth and the baby fish will be tiny and then they can escape into the little uh, little holes that get yeah, them out there. Too, well, a lot of the fish there. eggs can survive too through the bird's digestive system. Oh, wow, I didn't know so that. So if they're like, yeah, so if they're eating it, like a lot of these fish can kind of survive and so that's how they can get spread yeah. but um for when, when she started talking i was like oh my god this is just like a confession and like a i, know. So <laughs> I got all excited like i was hearing some secret <laughs> <laughs> go out my child and and okay. do better <laughs> okay. thanks for calling in michelle bye bye <laughs> she's adorable so the the email that i got was from the um 813 area code and it just says just tuned in what are you all talking about oh. so <laughs> we are talking 
So you're listening to the Sustainable Living Show here on 88.5 Tampa WMNF. Today we're talking with Tom Reese about Tampa Bay Spring and Shoreline Restorations. So if you want to be a part of the conversation, give us a call at 813-239-9663. Text us at 813-433-0885 or send us an email at dj at wmnf.org and we will read it on air for Tom. Um. Do you want to, I think I kind of talked a lot. You want to talk a little while, uh, Tanya? Yeah. Go of ahead. Of course I do. I love talking. Yes. <laughs> so when we're, I do want you, I know that we hit on it a little bit. And let me just get to that area. So when you, we're talking about. The P3s. Um, P3s. Yes. Can you explain kind of exactly what that is and what the process is, um, in getting that started and established. Sure, Tanya. I, before we do that, I just wanted to just give a quick shout out to the city of Tampa because there's another spring called Purity Springs up by Florida Avenue. And um, I helped them get a grant to get it designed and then they helped them get a big grant, federal grant. So they, they're working to restore that spring and we're gonna be there to get, provide technical um, advice where we can but that is a really exciting project too um it's a no one hardly even knows that's there it's a beautiful little spring and we're going to put a living shoreline along the river there too just oh, i wanted to so mention because cool. that's ongoing no one you knows know where there's any all- of the springs are there's so many all throughout tampa bay and literally the only one you hear about is ulele ulele right, and right. it's a gorgeous spring but there are so many they are absolutely everywhere i mean i probably could name six people that i'm friends with that have springs in, in their, their yard wow you yeah. know, uh, uh, down in Ewer City, too, down in the Italian area, which is towards uh, its east, uh, Ewer City, mm-hmm. where they used to grow tons of vegetables. They still do some. But that's there's a ton of springs back there as well. And I think they've redirected them. But there's a ton of springs back there. Wow. Interesting. So go so, ahead. Let's, sorry to, I we got off track real fast. Can you explain the P3s, <laughs> the public-private sure. partnerships? Sure. <laughs> we like, ooh, we, we want to know up. so much stuff so fast <laughs> is what. <laughs> yeah, no, I do want to talk about that. I, and so real quickly, yeah. in my entire career, I've been doing restoration projects, as, as Annie noted, but all those projects had one common denominator. Every one of them was done on public property, oh. right? Public dollars, public property. And it, it makes sense, right? But there are places that are really in need of restoration, a critical spot, linkages between preserves, et cetera, that are privately owned and we don't restore those. And those are very important to, to restore those areas. And so the birds and fish don't care who owns a property and we shouldn't either as restoration practitioners. We should find where they need to be done. And that's what started Ecosphere. I wanted to work on private land with public dollars, right? Mm -hmm. If it's good for the ecology and for the whole community, then why not do that? So we've been very successful in doing that, working on private lands. The only major condition that we put on it, since we're using public dollars to restore it, is that they have to put a perpetual conservation easement over the area that we restored. And the groups that we work with are fine with that, right? Because they they want to protect these areas. So that's where we need to go because even if we restore all the public land, which is about 22% along this coastal area here, that's not moving the needle. Yeah. Right. If we really want to make a difference, we need to go where the restoration is necessary and then protect those areas. And so we are doing what we call public-private partnerships. They're harder, a lot harder to do. 
to find entities to work with you. But in the end, they're award-winning projects. And that's what we're trying to get that word out that we should start breaking the mold and do some new things because it makes sense. Yeah. So when we talk about a conservation easement, a lot of people get kind of scared with that and they think it has to be their whole property. But right. are you saying that that's not the case? And that's, can you explain what a conservation easement is just in case people don't know? Yeah, and I'm not a lawyer, so don't. I might not use the right terms. But <laughs> oh, we're holding you to it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm taking notes. I'm a stenographer too, you know. <laughs> no, a conservation easement is put on the title of the land, okay? And you're right, people are scared of them. And yes. I, I understand why. But if we're doing, if you own 20 acres, for example, and it's along a creek, that, that strip along the creek where we put a living shoreline in, that's only where we're putting a conservation. Mm -hmm. And it's all wetlands anyway. They're already protected. So we're not encumbering your land for your resale. Or, it's like an easement kind of a thing. It is. Yeah. It is an easement. So the easement goes li literally over only over the area where the public dollars were spent. Yeah. The rest of the property, you can do what you want with as whatever rules are allow, right? Um, so those are important. And then that way in the future, when none of us are here anymore, they don't, people won't forget them because it's noted on the- right. um, It's designated. Right. And somebody holds it. The landowner holds it obviously on their property and somebody else holds it like the water management district or ecosphere even holds conservation easements. Wildlands um, is another nonprofit. They hold the conservation easements. And that way these, these documents are are there for the long term. That's good to have that documentation. You know, uh, Sweetwater just did a thing just like that. And it was the first time that's ever been done uh, for an agricultural area in, I believe, the whole state of Florida. Hmm. Uh, so uh, it's very helpful. So go ahead, Tanya. Oh, no, you're listening to the Sustainable Living Show, 88.5 Tampa. Today, we're talking with Tom Reese about Tampa Bay Spring and Shoreline Restoration. If you want to be a part of the conversation, give us a call at 813-239-9663 or email us at dj at wmnf.org. So we're getting really close to the end of the show. It goes so fast. I don't know how this happens. Uh, it so, really does. So what is there some things that we, you really want to specifically talk about that we, you know, may have missed or sidetracked off of? Because we want to make sure that you get your time here. No, I appreciate that. And there's nothing that we missed. But I wanted to say last night we were at um, Hope Festival. Oh, that's in lovely. In Dunedin, um, mm -hmm. which was started by Sylvia Earle. And... Bottom line is we presented to all the nonprofits that are there, Blue Green and all these really good nonprofits saying we're starting an ecosystem alliance, which is really like a Facebook page, but for nonprofits. So we can share information, we can ask for experts, we can share resources because all of us do our own thing and that's great. And I'll always collaborate with anybody, but this way, if we know what all the other nonprofits are doing, we can help them, yeah. right? You know, because I've been to where we did a cleanup and two days earlier, another group had come through the area. And because they didn't know that that had already been done. Exactly. So, so we need to what know what the, the dots. Yeah, yeah. And what the left hand uh, knows what the right hand's doing. So yeah. it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's so on this... our website. If you go to our website okay. and contact us for nonprofits, we'll give them a direct link to this Eco Alliance. I and love okay. that. So and that is wonderful. And for people that don't know, we did a show a couple years back on Hope Spot. Could you explain what it is? Well, Hope Spot is, I think, I don't know the number. I think there's 150 of them in the world. And they were established as areas that we should 
make sure we preserve and have a good chance to restore portions that are altered. And there is one here, and the one in Florida goes from Apalachicola down to 10,000 Isles. So it's the whole west side of the state, and that's a designated hope spot. And again, Dr. Sylvia Earle was the one that started this worldwide, and we're very happy to have one here in Florida. So it doesn't help as in provide dollars, but it's a designation, and we will all try to work together to protect that area. So Dunedin is a, you can go on there, look that up, the Hope Spot, uh, and it's the Florida Gulf Coast Hope Spot, city of Dunedin, Florida. Yes. That's fantastic. I didn't know that. And so if people want to get in touch with you, would you mind giving your either email or website one last time? Because we are getting about closing time. Sure. My email is T-R-I-E-S, for Tom Reese, at ecospherestoration.org. Or you can go to our website, which is ecospherestorationinstitute.org. Thank you so much. And I do... I do want to remind our listeners that so this upcoming week is our fundraiser. Yes, ma'am. So it's really it's really important if you love community radio to support WMNF because this is a spot where you will hear local news, local issues from the local community mm-hmm. and not necessarily what like the big companies want to get down, but really what's important here. And there's so many awesome, I'm going to stand up. I know the most of you can't see me, but just in case. You oh, you have your shirt on. Online. Look at you. Yeah. Because <laughs> every, I mean, every year there's different shirts and it's kind of like a <clears throat> collector's item. So yeah. if you wouldn't mind donating to the Sustainable Living Show on WMNF.org, it will really make my heart happy. And, you know, so I do we can like- also, I just want to make sure if you can direct it to Sustainable Living, then we'll, it'll make us even more super happy in the sense that we know that you are specifically saying that you like our show and you want it to stay on. And we're your own little hope spot. Absolutely. And thank you, Irene, for taking the calls and the wonderful Mr. Bill Grace for working the board. Stay tuned to the next <laughs> hour you hear WMNF Community Speaks with Mobley. And make sure to tune in next Monday morning um, for the Sustainable Living Show where we will have our fundraiser and we'll be, you know, asking everyone to tune in and to share. Follow our Facebook page sustainable living wmf to stay in the loop and also listen to our past shows by just going to the website listening on demand and choosing the date i'm tanya vitavik and i am annie ellis remember sustainability is a delicate balance but by working together we can make a difference and true change starts with the person you see in the mirror let's talk again next week you're listening to wmf tampa